Hear the word of the Lord. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obeyed my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see everybody. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, if you're visiting, welcome. Uh, it's been fun today so far. Figured everybody would be on summer vacation or something because it's nice and it was Memorial Day and kids off school, but y'all must really want to be at church today. So... All right, I will do my best to play my part, okay? We'll see what happens. Uh, so we're, we're starting a series today that will carry us through most of the summer uh, called The Fruit of the Spirit. And maybe you're like, The Fruit of the Spirit? Where in the world? What a, what a catchy name. Who's in charge of the branding here, right? Uh, well, we got that from the Bible. Um, in, in Galatians chapter 5, uh, Paul describes, you know, what does a life look like when it's separated from God? Uh, what are some of the... Uh, the hallmarks or the behaviors that uh, signify a life separated from God. Uh, he calls them the acts of the flesh or the works of the flesh. And then he contrasts that towards the end of chapter 5 with the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, rather, or in other words, what does a life that's been filled with the presence of Christ look like in contrast to a life that's lived separated from God? And so we get this real famous verse in Galatians 5, 22. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. If you grew up going to Sunday school, you have this memorized. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, leave that up there for a second. Uh, so these, these are the qualities of a life filled with the Spirit of Christ. This is what it looks like. And notice, uh, we're going to go to grammar here for a second. So brace yourselves if that's a problem. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Notice it doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. It's a singular noun. 
to be precise, which means this is a package deal. These nine things, these qualities, attributes, go together. They're, they're a package deal. Now, most of us will look at a list like this and say, man, you know what? This year, self-control, right? Not most of us go self-control. That's what I've been, self-control has been the fruit of the spirit I've been working on for 15 years now. So working on it, right? We, we find the one we're not good at. And we say, that's the one I'm going to work on this year. Uh, and we, we miss it, right? We say, okay, there's this list of the bad things that we do in the beginning of Galatians 5. Now, this must be the list of the good things that we do. And so I'm going to go after each one of these things individually. And that is, that's not what is happening here in this passage. And that is not the way Jesus or the New Testament talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's a package deal. They all go together. Like, try to imagine, what, how could you have love in your life if you didn't have, say, just pick any two, kindness or faithfulness. He's really loving, but he's mean and lies all the time. Right? Like, you, you see what I'm saying here? He, he's so gentle, but he has no self-control and he's mean. <laughs> like, you can't get one without having all of them. And the, the point is, uh, these are not rules to follow. These are a, not a new list of Uh, do these instead of these other bad things, but rather these nine attributes are the the result of our already being united by faith with Jesus. Uh, To put it another way, these are the defining traits of of true Christianity. This is what emerges in our lives when we're united with Jesus. And so over the summer, next nine weeks or so, we're going to look at each one of these attributes as they're displayed in the life of Jesus to consider what will it look like when the life of Jesus starts showing up in my own life, when I start looking more like Jesus. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Why do we need them? How do we get them? This being the first week of the series, uh, I'm really excited about this. Uh, It's something we've been, as the pastors, we've been talking about doing this for a a long time now, a series like this. And uh, I've got some some big picture goals that I want to talk about on the front end because I have really high expectations for what I think God might be up to in this series. So my first one, and we've already alluded to it to some degree, is I think this this series will either invite us or force us, depending on your disposition, to shed some cultural baggage. Uh, And when most of us think of shedding cultural baggage, we think of the culture out there, uh, the American culture, uh, those bad people out there. And yeah, there will be things that will rub up against the dominant American culture. Like, what does it really mean to be a man? What does it really mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be strong? What does it mean to be a friend? Uh, But there are cultural norms in the church that must be confronted too. And for some of us, uh, identifying the culture of the church is kind of like a fish trying to identify water. We have a real hard time seeing it because we're swimming in it, or in some cases, we've created it. And it's really hard. You ever notice how you can lose track of the messes in your house because they just feel normal? It just becomes part of your life. And there's things that have become normal for us in the church that are both, not only are they unbiblical, they're incredibly destructive. And an example is, what comes to mind when you think of fruitfulness in the Christian life? Or say you've got a missionary that you you and your wife support every month, and they come back to give you the update, which is like the other way of saying to raise more money, right? And 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 you say, hey, how's, how's your ministry going? And they say, it has been so fruitful. What does that mean? People are getting saved. People are coming. People are showing up. 
Or if they came back and be like, man, it's in, they'll use Christian language, like we're just in a season of sowing right now, right? Or it's, there's just not much fruit right now. That's another way of saying people aren't showing up. The budget's down. No one's getting saved. Um, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Um, But what I do know is that when Jesus talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and when you see the fruit of the Spirit referenced in the rest of the New Testament, they're always talked about as inner character qualities, not stats that you can measure. Uh, When the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the context is always personal transformation. It's you changing to becoming more like Jesus. It's not evangelism or budgets or missionaries or church plants or projects or programs or all the stuff that we tend to get excited about and throw stats out about. Uh, what, so what the series will remind us is that God is chiefly interested in your character, not your productivity, not your results, in your character and the, the kind of person that you are and transforming who you are to be more like Jesus. So I hope we're gonna shed some cultural baggage in the church. Second, this will clarify for us um, what mature Christianity means. Uh, this is really connected to the first goal. The, the, I guess the point is once we've shed some of the cultural baggage or once we can at least see it, we have to receive from God his goal for us. So what does God actually want for us? If his goal isn't just to boost attendance and boost budgets and do more and bigger and better and on and on and on, if that's not his end goal, what is it? And this will force us to confront many of the things that we feel drawn to and then lay them down. To put it real simply and let your mind wander with this, uh, I believe God is inviting us to become a church that wants to know and be like Jesus more than we want to be impressive. And I think at our church, at Sojourn, this drive to be impressive and cool has so permeated our culture for years and years and years. And here's how this shows up in my own life. Uh, A guy that I'm Facebook friends with is planting a church in Harlem. So he's already cooler than me, right? Because he's in Harlem. And then he posts on Facebook this week, so encouraged. And I love this guy. This wasn't like a humble brag. I think he was genuinely like blown away. He was like so encouraged by the New York Times article they wrote about our church plant in Harlem. And I was like, no, the New York Times is never coming to New Albany, Indiana. You know, (laughs) like if you're a visitor this week, you're already unimpressed because you walk down the alley that normally holds our dumpsters to get into the church building. And if you want to go to the bathroom, we will shepherd you through the parking lot to the kids' wing so you can use a toilet built for a four-year-old, right? <clears throat> and listen, the New York Times is not coming here to be like, small-town Indiana church does wonderful renovation, bringing them into the late 20th century, <laughs> you know? Like, And so I read this article, and I'm like, I'm super encouraged by this guy. And then part of me is like, I wish we were that cool. Like, I wish someone would talk about how impressive our work is doing. And, and this is what, I'm, what I mean. Like, we want to have these innovations or do this thing that people can look at and be like, man, they're doing it. Look at that. And, and I think God is calling us to be a church that more so wants Jesus than we want to be cool or impressive. And what we'll see in that is that God 
at least if you're willing to read the Bible and take it seriously, God defines maturity almost exclusively in terms of the quality of your relationships, your ability to relate to God and to relate to other people. So the mature Christian in the Bible is not the one who has incredible theology. It's not the one who can raise people from the dead or has the gift of healing or can speak in tongues or can preach to masses or has a huge crowd or plants 20 churches by 2020 or whatever. The one who is mature is the one who can love, be loved, who can love God and who can love one another. Christian maturity is defined almost exclusively by the way we relate to God and each other. So my prayers this series will clarify for us or give us a clarified vision of mature Christianity. And finally, goal number three. This is kind of a summary of the other two, I suppose. That we would experience, um, we would get a renewed experience of our relationship with Jesus. Uh, ultimately, the goal of our series is to sink our roots deeply in Christ. And in a lot of ways, the sermon today will kind of be a, a summary and a little bit of a foretaste of all of the rest of them. I mean, today we're going to talk about how do you get the fruit of the Spirit. We'll talk about one in particular, but it applies to all of them. Uh, how do we experience the presence of Jesus in a new and transforming way? And the key to that, the key to the series is answered in the text today. And there's stunning simplicity to it. It's beautiful. And essentially what we'll see, what we see today, what we'll see throughout the series, is that the fruit of the Spirit appear in our lives through relationship with Jesus. If you want these attributes, if you read those nine, we left them up for a while so you could see the one that you're not good at, right? You see that one and you're like, got a ways to go. Uh, if you see that and there's, there's something in you that's like, man, what would my life look like if I wasn't so angry? What would my life look like if I had more self-control? Oh, if I was just more gentle. If you see that and you're drawn to it, know that the way there is through Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. And if, if these qualities look more beautiful to you than Jesus does, you'll probably never get to those qualities. But if we see Jesus and experience him, these will show up in our life. And this brings us to John 15, what was just read for us. Uh, 17 verses, but there's some of the most stunning, beautiful verses in the whole Bible. Uh, if you if you have read the Gospels or spent much time reading the ministry of Jesus, uh, he can be kind of aggravating sometimes because he gets asked questions. Jesus, what's heaven like? And he's like, well, imagine a field with a wonderful treasure in it. And you're like, shoot me straight, man. You know, he, he's kind of slippery sometimes or he deflects attention off himself. He'll do a miracle and be like, hey, buddy, don't tell anybody about this, right? Just be quiet about it and go home. Uh, he's always just kind of skirting around the edges uh, when people talk to him directly. And then, and then we get this conversation here with his closest friends, where in, in the original language, uh, Greek handles pronouns differently than English, so don't go like fact-checking me and count your English translation at home because it'll be different. In the original translations here, Jesus references himself 44 times. It'll probably be somewhere between 60 and 70, depending on how, uh, which translation you look at. Over and over and over, he's saying, I, me, my. Uh, he's, it's a window into the heart of Jesus. It is an unfiltered, clear look to these are my priorities. This is what is most important to me. This is the, 
the foundation. He's about to die. He knows what's coming for him. And he looks at his closest buddies and says, this is what you must know. This is what is crucial. This is what is on my mind and heart that I want you to know before I leave you. And he begins by sharing one of the most profound truths about who he is. In the Gospel of John, if if you're familiar with it, it has these famous I am statements from Jesus where uh, he'll say, I am the blank. And what he's doing is he takes really familiar concepts or phrases or ideas and he kind of flips them to say, you know, this thing that you've known, this thing that you've been familiar with, it's, it's actually been about me this whole time. And so, for instance, one popular uh, image story that the people in Jesus' day would have known is the story of God setting the Israel sl- Israeli slaves free from Egypt, right? The Exodus, book of Exodus. Leads them out of slavery, and then God rains bread on them in the wilderness to feed them and take care of them. And at one point in his ministry, Jesus looks at a crowd of people and he says, I am the bread from heaven. I'm the true bread from heaven. And think about what he's trying to communicate there. Just as God took care of his people when they wandered in unexpected ways and sustained them day by day, even when they didn't know how it was coming, that's who I am to you. This is what Jesus does throughout the book of John. And he comes here to one of his most, I would argue, the most staggering I am statements. So in John 15, 1, now this won't feel like it sizzles in the pan much because most of us aren't Jewish and we live in Indiana, okay? But we'll get to it here in just a second. John 15, 1, he says, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. And if we were just literally word for word translate this, Jesus would say, I, yes, I am the vine, the true vine. He's being emphatic and passionate It's almost a royal statement, the the heaviness that he's using here. Uh, And it's easy for us to miss because most of us, most of us don't tend vines, I'm assuming. And anybody, I don't know, is Mr. Huber here with his, right? (laughs) Mr. Huber in the back. I like to talk to you about some exciting opportunities for all your money afterwards. Uh, (coughs) Right? Like most of us don't have vines. And most of us didn't grow up going to the temple in Jerusalem in the first century AD that had a wall-to-wall gold-encrusted vine with gigantic jewels on it, bigger than I am, branches longer than my arm. Every time, Imagine if every time you went into church, you saw a vine that was worth more than all of your possessions, probably a hundred times over. The people in Jesus' day, that's how they would have gone to church. And what's more, if you read the Old Testament, over and over and over again, Jews, the, uh, the people of God, Israel, are called the vine of God or the vineyard of God. The idea being that God's goodness would come into a broken world filled with weeds, filled, filled with perversions and brokenness. And this pure vine would come and the fruit of God would go and fill the earth. Goodness, righteousness, peace. And that was to be Israel, the people of God. And if you, if you go, you can just look in the back of your Bible for vine and see all these references. But what you'll notice is a lot of the time, Israel is called a vine that bears bad fruit. They were supposed to be this and they just failed over and over and over again. And now here comes Jesus and says, all this expectation, 
all of this about where life comes from, where the good life would come from, where the life God intended it to come from. All of that, it's about me. I am the vine, the real one. I am the true vine. God's goodness, the fruit that's been intended will come from me. And he he doesn't just stop there, though. He makes it even more emphatic and intimate. So again, he says, yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches in verse 5. So just try to imagine the intimacy Jesus is implying here. You know, there's an I am statement that even if you're not a Christian, uh, most of our culture knows. Uh, We've got it memorized. So at one point, Jesus says to a group of people, I am the way the, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. Y'all have a verse memorized. Praise the Lord, right? And so think about if Jesus was just the truth, that's all he was. I am the truth. There's some distance that you can maintain from the truth. You can know a thing is true. You can believe a thing is true. You can confess a thing without being connected to a thing. Um, without really knowing and being known by a thing. Does anybody know who the president of the United States is? Only one person was willing to say in the first service. I'll just tell you, his name is Donald Trump, right? For better or for worse, whatever you think about that, whether you're pumped or you're terrified, right? That is the truth. That's true. But I don't know the man. He doesn't know where I live. We don't have any kind of relationship. And other than that, like a very high-level policy kind of a way indirectly, he has next to no influence on my life. Maybe a less bothersome, troublesome example for you. You can know that broccoli is good for your body. Amen? Amen. You can know it's good for your body. But did you know that knowing it's good for you has zero health benefits for your body? Did you know that? Pick another example. What about the beet? Have you ever tasted a beet? (coughs) Once was enough, right? But then someone comes and was like, well, you know, there's more antioxidants in a blueberry or whatever. I don't know. The health benefits are staggering. I know. I also know how it tastes, right? You can know the thing. You can know the truth of it but that's not, that doesn't necessarily change you or transform you or benefit you. There's, James will say, the demons know Jesus is the Son of God. Some of you think you're safe because you have good theology and you are not safe. Knowing the truth is never enough. I mean, how many more examples do you need? Hopefully the broccoli was enough, right? Jesus says, I'm not just the truth. I am the truth but I'm also the vine. And I'm not just the vine, but I am the vine and you are the branches. Jesus is the source of God's promised goodness to the earth. And we are, just let your mind roll with the imagery here. You are organically, fundamentally, at a cellular level, connected to Jesus. Our life flows from his life. What does this mean about the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is the organic result of our connection to the life of Jesus. The the fruit of the Spirit is the life of Jesus budding 
and blossoming and ripening into our own. It's the life of Jesus being manifested in our life as we are transformed to become like Jesus. He is the source of human life. He is the truest picture of what a human life is to look like, which means that for life to be truly human, it must be connected to Jesus. All of our lives will bear fruit. All of our lives are like a vine. Or I think it's fair to stick with the illustration and say, like, Jesus is the tree and we are the branches. All of us are fruit-bearing creatures. We will bear good fruit. We will bear some kind of fruit, be it good or bad. Good fruit is the result of being connected to the true source of life, Jesus. Good fruit is the reproduction of the life of the vine. You're like, you've said that 11 times in a row now. Why? Because most of us are tempted. We're, do, you, do you see your own addiction? Like your, your own drive to be given a list of what to do by God so that you can do it, so that at night you can look to God and say, I did it, or I tried hard, or I did enough. And that is not what this is. It's when we come to Jesus and experience his life and his life shows up in ours. This is not a checklist to run down. It is the result of deep transformation as the life of Christ shows up in our own. And what follows from here is Jesus's beautifully simple instruction in how we bear good fruit. He knows he came to rescue addicts. Like that's part of the reason we're saved by grace. So Jesus could say, the scorecard you keep at the cross, I actually ripped it up and I set it on fire and I spat on it and I stomped on it and I shoveled it out the back porch and then the wind blew it away. Like it's over with, it's done with. All of your proving, all of your trying to earn it, it's done with. And then we're still left there saying, well, what do we do? What do we do? It's so easy to say, well, you bear the fruit of the spirit through relationship with Jesus. What does that mean? Over and over in this passage, in this translation, um, we heard the simple refrain, remain in me. Your translation may say, abide with me. The, the sense is to make your home with him. Here's just a couple that he says in this passage. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask for anything you want and it will be, it will be granted. Remain in my love. He's saying, make your home in me. Sink your roots in me. Stay with me. How do you bear good fruit? Make your home with Jesus. And this is so different than what most of us do. Let's go with the tree analogy. Imagine you're an apple tree. Or if you're like part of the snowflake generation, you can be an orange tree or a cherry tree, whatever kind of tree you want to be. But for, I'm going to talk about an apple tree, okay? Most of us would go about it this way. We would say, man, this season, I'm going to make some killer apples. This will be my best apple year ever. There's a bunch of pastors who have really big churches and they have cool branding and great haircuts. And they wrote a couple of really wonderful books on how to make apples. So I'm going to read all those books this summer. And then I'm going to pray that God would give me lots of apples. I'm going to, I'm going to create strategy for what I'm going to do with all the apples. Some of them I'm going to do apple cider. Some of them I'm going to do apple pie. Some of them I'm going to give away. Some of them, 
I'm going to say, I'm going to come up with this beautiful whiteboard strategy. I'm going to put it in a prospectus with a logo. The church planters laugh at that, because you know what I'm saying. And then we're going to have a hard time sleeping at night because we looked across the street and we see how many more apples our neighbor has on their tree than we have on our tree. And then we're going to feel guilty because we should probably have more, tree, more apples on our tree by now. Is, what is the most important thing the branch of an apple tree must do to produce apples? That's rhetorical. The first service tried to answer that and it was really awkward. A guy, a guy in our community group this week, maybe you guys saw the picture on Facebook, his face all messed up. A guy in our community group had a, like a 100-pound branch of a tree fall on him this week. It almost killed him. Uh, imagine if we took this branch, huge branch, let's say it was an apple tree, and we laid it out in the front yard, and we put the best fertilizer on it, and we read every book on cultivating apple trees, and we put water on it, put it out in the sun, how long before that branch sprouts delicious apples? Never! From the front, thank you. Never. The most important thing for an apple tree to do to produce apples is to remain connected to the apple tree. And I should have said branch. You know what I meant. All it must do is remain connected to the apple tree and it will produce apples. Did you see what Jesus said? If you remain in me and maintain your moral purity and have your quiet time every day and give regularly, pray, and this, and whatever your checklist is, then we'll see about what kind of fruit you can do. He says, if you remain in me, you will produce much fruit. And this is where we have to be prepared to be confronted. Because remember, the fruit of the Spirit are deep character qualities of the life of Jesus. It's not showy, flashy stuff that you can measure necessarily. Uh, it's deep transformation. It's seeing these nine attributes appear in your life. And Jesus is saying, the way to this fruit is to stay connected to me. If you want to produce fruit, stay connected to the vine. Boom. That is it. So how? How do we do that? And again, if your first reaction is like, okay, fruit of the Spirit, one thing. How do you get it? Stay connected to Jesus. What do I do? Tell me what to do. Like, you got to see the addiction popping up out of your life. Uh, do you realize how boring it would be to be the branch of an apple tree? It's like, kind of hung here all day, you know? Like, a couple birds landed on me. You imagine how exciting it would be for a cat to get stuck in the tree if you were that branch? I'm not suggesting that the goal of all of our lives should be to just like go lay in the grass and be like, I'm just remaining in Jesus. You know, like that's what we do all day. But if our first inclination is to say, give me the list of the things that I'm supposed to do now, that's one way God is trying to help you see your own addiction, to try to prove something to him or try to earn your place with him. But Jesus is gracious. And so he goes on and tries to describe to us what are, what are the first buds blossoming in this tree of life 
uh, what are the first indications that Jesus is coming and is doing a work in us, that we are abiding with him? And this fruit is not only the evidence of Jesus' presence in our life, but it's one of the primary ways we make our home with Jesus. So if you're like, man, what do I do? Tell me what to do, preacher. Tell me, I want this. I want to change. What do I do? Uh, Here we go. Jesus begins explaining by saying first in verse nine, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. And we could reflect on this the rest of our life. Think about what he's saying. The way the eternal God that I have coexisted with in perfect community for all eternity, the way he has loved me, that is the way I love you. Eternal, unending, bottomless, passionate, joy-filled commitment. That is the way I love you. That is the reality that Jesus says that he feels about us. This is how he's loved us. Now, when that sinks in, when that takes root, what will happen? What does it look like when somebody believes that? Verse 10, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. The love Jesus had for his father moved him to obey him, just as, sorry, the love Jesus has for us moves us to obey him, just as the father's love for Jesus moved him to obey Jesus. When we obey Jesus's commandments, we are homemaking in Jesus. How do you abide in Jesus? Do what he says. How do you make your home in Jesus? Do what he says. Now, for some of us, that triggers the PTSD. Isn't that everything you just said that we're not supposed to be doing? The rules, do all of these things. You grew up in a church that had no shortage of rules. And you wonder why you feel guilty all the time. Jesus says, you want to make your home in me? Do what I say. And he, he anticipates our addiction to the rule following. He can feel the question, what are your commandments? What do you want us to do, Jesus? What must we obey? And so here's the bombshell. Verse 12. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. How do you remain in the love of Christ? How do you make your home in him? How do you experience his love for you? Love each other in the same way I have loved you. This this is the stunning, scandalous simplicity of the gospel. Jesus loves you like the Father loves Jesus. If you want to make your home in him, do what he asks of you. What has he asked of you? Love each other. What's this look like? He's so smart. Verse 14. There's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. This is how Jesus has loved you. He looks at you as a friend. Because he loved his father, he obeyed him. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. That passage in Hebrews will go on to say, what is the joy that was set before Jesus? It was you and me, redeemed and transformed, that Jesus could present to God as a gift of his love. Because of his great love for us, Jesus laid his life down for us. He laid down his rights. He laid down his comfort laid down his reputation for his friends. Love, hear me now, love is the truest, clearest, surest indicator of a life changed by Jesus. 
It's not impressive ministry stats. It's not your skills or your talents or your eloquence or your intelligence or something that we can measure or your, how popular you are or any of this stuff. Do you have love? Can you love and be love? And for the Christian, love, this kind of love, is so different than what our world knows. Christian love is self-sacrificing love, a love that lays down our rights. And throughout history, in the last 2,000 years, whenever people have believed in Jesus, and I mean wherever, regardless of the culture, regardless of the time period, regardless of the country, whenever people have made their home in Jesus, it has always given birth to communities of self-giving love. People who don't just look to their own interests, but look to the interests of others as well. People who laid down their rights, people who shared their possessions, who richly, generously shared their lives with their friends. Well, how could that be? Because this is how the Father loved Jesus. This is how Jesus loved us. And this is how those who love Jesus will love one another. And here's what's crazy. Verse 11, Jesus says the result of this. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Sounds paradoxical. But think about what we've heard Jesus say up to this point in the Bible. If anyone would gain his life, he must what? Lose it. If anyone would be first, he must be last. If you want love, you've got to give it away. If you want to receive love and know love and make your home in my love, give your love away. And the promise is not that you'll get a pat on the back or that you'll just sneak into heaven, or that if we can just grit our teeth and drudge through it, at least we'll get heaven at the end. The promise is that when we learn to make our home in Jesus and give our love away, our joy will overflow. Overflow. Abundance. A harvest so plentiful that we can't bring it all in. So, I've got two real simple questions for us to close. The first is, do you want to experience more of the love of Jesus? One of the saddest realities I see in our church, and in this area in particular, is men and women who've gone to church for years and years and years and years, and the love of God has remained nothing more than an abstract quasi-theological concept. In other words, it's something that we know is true. God loves me. Yeah, 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 yeah. How are you sleeping at night? How do you feel when someone criticizes you? How do you feel when your plans don't go your way? The love of God remains something that's far away from us, not something that we're organically, fundamentally connected to. It's not a tangible reality for us. How real is the love of God for you? When Jesus says, just as the Father has loved me, that's how I loved you. Do you believe that? 
Do you want to experience more of the love of Jesus? If so, if you want that to become tangible, transforming, and real for you, here's the second question. Who will you love like Jesus has loved you? Or maybe who is God inviting you to love like Jesus has loved you? For most of us, there's someone that we probably are avoiding. We hope we don't see in the grocery store. We'd rather just not see again. Maybe it's that person. Maybe it's the awkward person that we just don't want to be their only friend. Or maybe it's the person at community group that you hate when they show up early because you know you're going to be stuck talking to them or whatever. I hope you've got a name. Who is God inviting you to love like Jesus has loved you? Life is complicated, relationships even more so, and so I'm not going to tell you how to do that. How will you love that person? How will you love that situation? I don't know. Um, But we come to communion for lots of reasons, but it's so applicable here. So we come first to remember how we have been loved. Jesus says, Remain in me, love one another as I have loved you. And communion is the clearest picture that we have. It's our drama ministry. It's where we experience tangibly how Christ has loved us. So we come to remember this is how he's loved us. And then we come hoping, praying to have our imaginations fueled. We've been loved this way. How can I take this and make it real to the people in my life? How can I take this and love that person this way? How can we leave here and love others as Jesus has loved us? So let's come filled with expectation, asking the Spirit to make it clear for us. The imagery is rich, and I pray that you don't miss it. On the night he was betrayed, the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and he thanked God for it, and he broke it. Think of that series of events, betrayal, the broken bread, in just a few moments. And he says, This is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and says, this is what seals your relationship with God. Or to stick with the analogy, this is what secures your connection to the vine. This is what keeps you connected to me forever. This is what will keep you from ever being cut off or thrown away or being removed. It's my blood shed for you. You're safe with God. Drink this, eat this, and remember what I've done for you. This is how we've been loved. The body of Christ was broken for us. The blood of Christ was shed for us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the life of Christ is available to you. These attributes are available to you. Has anyone in your life loved you the way Jesus has loved you? They've been broken for you. They've bled for you. They've invited you in by grace. All you have to do is receive that love. If you don't agree with what this meal means, we just ask that you would honor us. This is a big, big deal for Christians. Honor us by not participating in it. But we pray that you would come to Christ and see the life available to you. If you are a Christian, who is God inviting you to love? Come and be reminded of how you've been loved. Our tradition at Sojourn is to rip off a piece of bread and dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. uh, And we'll have gluten-free elements to my left your right, and there'll be stations in the back as well. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, you can come enjoy communion as you're ready.
Let's pray.